You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, we have finally made it to chapter 7 uh, of 1 Corinthians, and I've been eager to get to this chapter. It, it really deals with two primary issues. Uh, one is the issue of marriage, and the other is the issue of singleness. So next week, we're going to take marriage. This week, we're taking the issue of singleness. And, uh, and this is a really important issue for us to talk about for a lot of different reasons. Let me just give you a couple. Uh, here's one reason why the issue of singleness is so important for us as a church family to consider. Uh, the U.S. Uh, population, uh, the single kind of portion of it has grown dramatically uh, over the years. So uh, for the first time in American history in 2014, there were more single people in America than there were married people in America. And that trend is here to stay. And we could talk a, a lot about maybe some of the contributing factors to that. But the point I just want you to kind of sense is uh, singles are a growing part of the, the United States population. Therefore, they're going to be a growing part of the church population of who makes up a local church family just like ours. So singles are a growing part of, of our country. Secondly, uh, another reason why it's important that we consider this particular topic is many of us have what I would just call an underdeveloped theology of singleness. We just have not thought clearly about what the Bible says about singleness. So imagine for a moment, I uh, took a piece of paper, slid it in front of you, and at the top of the paper was this question. Tell me what the Bible has to say about singleness, about the, about the single life. Now, just imagine you then writing what the Bible has to say about it. I think for far too many of us, our answers would lack the depth, the beauty, the hope, and the encouragement that the Bible offers to all of those who are single. And I don't want that to be for us, right? Churches can have a, uh, have a way of communicating all sorts of lies to singles, all sorts of things that aren't true to singles. Uh, in the way that we talk, in the ethos of a church, they, they can look at singles and sort of relegate the single life to pre-married purgatory, to a second best sort of life, to, to life that is far from the ideal. And all of those are teaching lies to single uh, folks, right? They're, they're teaching the lie that to be single is to be less than. And that is not how the scripture sees it. The, the scripture is not looking at single people and saying to them, you know, you just haven't reached really the pinnacle of life and what life could and should be for you. It's not approaching it that way. But, but churches can, and people, Christians can, can unbeknownst to themselves even at times, uh, be preaching and teaching that lie in subtle ways and overt ways. So we just have an underdeveloped theology of singleness. And thirdly, as a church, I want us to be the type of place that sees and celebrates singles. That communicates to every single person at Stonegate that, that you are both welcomed and wanted. And that is not how many single people feel in churches. But that, that's what we would want, isn't it? That for every single person to feel welcomed and wanted. We want that as a church. For Jesus' sake, we all want that. For the sake of our singles, we want that. And, and you should be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, for my own sake, I want that. Right? We, we were all single once. And even if you're married, there is a great chance you will be single again. And, and don't you want a church that values and celebrates and honors singles like the scriptures does? So with that said, to all of our married folk in the room, this sermon is, is not just for singles. It is also for you. 
so that you can develop a, a robust theology of singleness, so that you can catch the biblical vision of singles, uh, the single life, and then open up your life to singles who are around you. And this sermon is for singles. Uh, to every single person in the room, I want to look at you and say, as a church family, we want you to thrive as a single person. We so want that for you. And that starts with you also catching a vision for how the Bible sees the single life. So I want to take it in two parts. I want to talk about the unique burdens of single life and then the unique blessings. So we'll start with the burdens. The single life carries unique burdens, and those burdens can be different depending on the season of singleness you're in. So we would all look at single folk and say it's a lot different to be 10 and single than it is to be 25 and single, than it is to be uh, maybe divorced and single at 50, than it is to be widowed and single at 60 or 70. All of those seasons are very different. So the experience of, of singleness can be different, but there, there are some particular burdens that comes along with the single life. Uh, and as I have asked people, singles in and around our church family, to describe and articulate some of those burdens, here, here are some of the categories that those burdens sort of fit into. Uh, one is loneliness. Loneliness. Anne Hathaway once said in an interview, loneliness is my least favorite thing about life. The thing that I'm most worried about is just being alone without anybody to care for or, any, or, or without anyone to care for me. And I, I think that, that sentiment, that feeling is very present in many singles. And loneliness can and should be minimized by, by investing your life into a healthy church family, a vibrant church family. That, that should be minimized. But that feeling of loneliness persists for so many singles. That's a unique burden, loneliness. Uh, Decision-making was one of the, the burdens that a lot of our singles talked about. Several of our ladies mentioned the difficulty of approaching decisions uh, by themselves, uh, without a spouse. Uh, many of those have, had been divorced or uh, widowed, and just the difficulty of now leaning into and making all those decisions by themselves. Uh, another one of those burdens was not fitting in. You know, you know, it's interesting just to think about how life works. The older you get, the more married the world becomes, right? Just sort of the way that, that life has a way of, of working out. And one older single gal at our church expressed it like this. One burden is trying to fit in with couples or thinking I need to be married or dating to be normal. Because I'm single, I'm exempted from some opportunities. I, I think that's true for a lot of our single uh, men and women. I think it's fair to say that a lot of our singles have a hard time uh, in sort of context that everybody else is married there. Everybody else has a partner there. I had one older single lady tell me once, I often feel forgotten in a lot of church settings. Not fitting in. Uh, sexual sin is another burden of singleness. And to be clear, sexual sin is a temptation in and out of marriage. Marriage doesn't solve uh, the temptation of sexual sin. But it is a unique burden to be single and to live without an appropriate God-honoring place for your sexuality. Th that is a, a difficulty, a unique burden. One of our singles told, me, uh, told it to me like this. He said, at times, it can seem an overwhelming task. Uh, maybe we should just give in. Everybody else is. So sexual sin is one of those areas of, of uh, burdens and, and hardships. And then maybe a, a last one is just waiting. Uh, for, for many of our singles, there is a longing to be married. 
And for those who want to be married, waiting for marriage is a unique burden. Uh, One of our singles said it this way, if a single person has the desire for marriage and children, waiting for God can seem hopeless. I watched my friends go through different seasons, getting married, getting their first house, having kids, etc. Yet here I am in the same season of singleness. Now, I wanted to start with these burdens for a reason. Church, if we are going to be the type of place that can bear one another's burdens, we first have to see that those burdens exist, don't we? I mean, that's how it works. It's hard to bear burdens if you don't know the burdens are there. So if we're going to bear those burdens, we have to see and know, oh, this is, this is the life my single friends are living around here. These are some of the burdens that they're experiencing around here. And now once I see them, I can find ways to get up under those burdens and be helpful to bear those burdens. What happens for, for most of us is as soon as we get out of season of life, we just stop caring about that previous season of life. And so it's, it's just very common for married folk just to forget about what life as a single person felt like, what it was like. And church, we don't want to be like that, right? We want to see those unique burdens and then do everything we can to bear those burdens. Now, I, I want to talk about the unique blessings of singleness. Because the single life does not just carry unique burdens. It also carries unique blessings. Now, this takes us to our text in 1 Corinthians 7. Just a surface level reading of this text is going to show you that Paul is commending and celebrating singleness. Paul loves the single life. That that is what the the surface level reading is showing us. Uh, If I were to to take what the Bible says about singleness and marriage and condense it down into a very small sort of summary statement, here's the way I would sort of position the two beside one another. In the scriptures, marriage is considered ordinary. Ordinary. It's the Bible's sort of expected norm. This is the life Jesus is going to give most people in most places. Marriage is ordinary in the Bible. On the other hand, singleness is extraordinary. It is exceptional in the Bible. And this is Paul's point. And Jesus affirms that point in Matthew 19. Paul is saying, yes, marriage is ordinary. It's the sort of expected norm. It's what's going to happen to most people. It's going to be the gift God gives most people in most places. But far from a pre-married purgatory... Singleness is exceptional. It is extraordinary. So you see it there in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Now just notice what Paul is doing. Paul is looking at marriage and he's talking about marriage as a gift. Marriage is a good thing. It's a gift to be received from Jesus. That's marriage. It is a good gift. But Paul also says singleness is a good thing. The single life is a good thing. It's also a gift to be received from Jesus. I just want to say that as clearly as I can. Paul, when he looks at singleness, Paul sees the single life as a gift from Jesus. Not just marriage is a gift. But, but a single life is also a gift from Jesus. He, he goes, in, uh, goes on in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul sees the single life as a good life, an exceptional life. Uh, verse 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. So marriage is a good thing. You, you've done well if you've married. And he who refrains from marriage, chooses a single life, will do even better. 
Again, when Paul looks at the single life, he sees it as an exceptional life, an extraordinary life that should be celebrated and honored. Just think about the biblical examples of this. Jesus, the hero of the Bible. Uh, Paul and uh, probably John together, they, they wrote the majority of the New Testament. Uh, think about John the Baptist. Think about Barnabas, Timothy, Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Mary, Martha, Mary Magdalene, Lydia, who helped plant the church in Philippi. All of those men and women were single. All of them lived extraordinary lives. Friends, the single life is not second best in the Bible. It is not second best. Life is not found on your wedding day. Life is found in Jesus who lived for us, died for us, and busted out of the grave on the third day. That's where life is found. And you can have a full life married or as a single man or woman. Now, I want to take a moment here and allow you to test yourself. We just need to pause and you need to ask yourself, is this the way I view singleness? Is this the way that I see it? Is there something in me deep down that really does feel like the single life is a second best sort of life? Or do I see singleness like the scriptures does, like, like God does? I, I agree with one author when he says this, if we balk at the idea of singleness being a gift, it's not because God has not understood us, it's because we have not understood him. I, I think that's true. So we need to ask ourselves if we see something in us that, that really does consider the, the single life as a subpar life, what are we not seeing about God? What are we not seeing about singleness? Okay, I'm going to take a few minutes now to answer the question, why does Paul see the single life as extraordinary? Why does Paul see singleness as a gift from God to his people? Why is that? Uh, let me give you three reasons. And this could be multiple sermons. Let me just give you three reasons why Paul sees the single life as an exceptional life. Uh, reason number one, the single life shows the sufficiency of Jesus. The sufficiency of Jesus. Okay, think about marriage and singleness. Again, let's put these together and, and kind of set them beside each other to look at. Both marriage and singleness are first and foremost for God. And the moment you take marriage or singleness and you take uh, the, the foreness of God out of it, you have distorted and marred what both are for. Both marriage and singleness are for God. They say something true about God. So in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about marriage and how it is primarily, first and foremost, for God. And he's making the point in Ephesians 5 that marriage functions like a signpost. Marriage is meant to point beyond itself all the way to the marriage that Jesus has uh, with his people. Th that's what marriage is for. So if you have been gifted marriage, that is the most important thing we can say about your marriage. Your marriage and the way you love your spouse, the, she, he or she loves you, uh, the, the way that works together is meant to say something true about the way Jesus loves the church and the church loves Jesus. That's the primary point of, of marriage. Now, in the same way, just like marriage is a signpost, singleness is a signpost. It points beyond the earthly reality of a single life to say something true about Jesus. I love how Sam Alberry, in his book on singleness, he, he says it this way. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. 
the sufficiency of Jesus, the sufficiency of the gospel. Singleness gives a person a way of saying, my marriage to Jesus is so wonderful, so satisfying, so sufficient, so rich, so real to me that I can do without marriage. I can do without sex and I can be, I can be just fine. Jesus is that sufficient. Singleness, it gives us a chance to say that true thing about Jesus. And friends, that's a truth that our culture needs to hear. We live in a culture that is obsessed with sex and romantic love. We're obsessed with it. It's everywhere in our culture. I agree with one pastor when he said, uh, just look at Disney. Disney-style popular cultural narratives begin telling life stories only, now think about the, the typical uh, script or sort of narrative. They tell life stories only when two parties are about to find true love, and then once they do, the story fades out. The message is that what matters in life is finding romance in marriage. Everything else is prologue and afterward. I think that's so true. This is so much of how our culture sees these things. Our, our culture has made sexual fulfillment central to human fulfillment. That is the cultural ethos uh, that you and I live in. If you want to just think about how a movie teaches this, take the, the comedy, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. You familiar with that movie? Now think about the premise of the movie. The, the whole premise behind the movie is that to be single and a virgin at 40 is just absolutely laughable. And the Bible's looking at a 40-year-old virgin and saying, that's not la 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 laughable? No, that's extraordinary. That, that is amazing according to the scriptures. And to that culture, God has given us the gift of singleness to say something true about him. That he is that satisfying. That romantic love is not necessary for personal fulfillment. To be, to be satisfied in this life. Jesus is what's necessary to be satisfied in this life. Singleness gives us a way of saying that, to show the sufficiency of Jesus. Second reason Paul considers it extraordinary and as a gift. The single life shows what will last forever. What will last forever. Or we could maybe say it in the inverse way. The single life shows us what will not last forever. Here's one thing that will not last forever earthly marriages. Earthly marriages will not last forever. Now this catches some people off guard, but Jesus is so clear in his teaching on this. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus says it this way, is this not the, the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus is clear that marriage is a temporary blessing. It's temporary. It's not eternal. The earthly marriages are, are temporary in the age to come. So that's when Jesus comes back or when you die and you meet Jesus face to face. In the age to come, marriage is going to function like a shadow. It will fade away as the reality of our union with Jesus. Our marriage with Jesus begins to shine. Ma marriage is a temporary blessing. And in this way, singleness reminds us now of the marriage that will last forever. It's the marriage we have with Jesus. That both single folks and people who are married in this world both enjoy that marriage with Jesus. Singleness points us to that marriage with Jesus that will last forever. Here's another thing that won't last. Earthly families. 
Earthly families will not last. Now just think about uh, how family works in a Christian life. Uh, Every Christian has been given by God two families. One we might call a family by birth. Uh, You could think of this as your maybe your biological family or the the family that you were adopted into. Uh, It's the family that that, uh, you grow up in. That's your family by birth, right? And then you are also given by Jesus, if you're a follower of his, a family by rebirth. A family that comes through faith in Jesus. It's the family of God. It comes through salvation in Jesus. So we've got a family by birth and a family by rebirth. And part of what the Bible works so hard to do is to convince us that our family by rebirth, our faith family, our church family, is more real and more lasting than our family by birth. Now that is so counterintuitive and countercultural. But the Bible works so hard to convince us of that. Uh, this is Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, he's in the middle of doing a lot of ministry. And the scriptures say, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. So mom comes and she's like, Jesus, we got to have a word. And listen to what Jesus says back. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? His mom's like, right here is where your mom is, Right? And then listen to what he says. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here, not over there, not not Mary over there. No, here they are. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see what he's saying? He's just saying like marriage, families are a temporary blessing. It's temporary, like shadows in the age to come. Our earthly families will fade as the reality of God as our father. And our brothers and sister in Christ begins to shine. It's a temporary blessing. Now, in light of that, in light of both our, our families and our marriages, they're just temporary blessings. They will not last into eternity. In light of that, I think that should give us all a sense of we need to make sure our lives are deeply invested into the family of God. We all need to have our life intertwined in the family of God, doing everything we can to to help grow the family of God in our life. Friends, if you have a big growing family by birth, I mean, you got a lot of kids. I mean, all the stuff's happening, right? You You got a big growing family by birth. Without a big growing family by rebirth, in the end, you will have lost. This is what Jesus is trying to show us. In the end, you will have lost. So invest your life deeply into the family of God. Here's how a person comes into the family of God. Through faith in the person of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. That's that's how we get into the family of God. So this means we should all be serious about sharing Jesus with people, right? Like that, who's your one card? Like whoever your one is for this quarter, we are serious Blood earnest serious about sharing Jesus with people, inviting people into the family of God. We we are blood earnest serious about making disciples, about investing our life into other men and women, right? Growing the family of God, helping it be vibrant in our life. Listen to how Paul, Paul is a single man, no wife, no kids, bio kids, none of that. Listen to how he talks. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 16 through, 14 through 16. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church and he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. 
He's got no children, but he's looking at this church and saying, oh, I've got children. They are right here. It is the Corinthian church. You are my kids. He goes on. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Never had any biological kids. Never was married. But he's got kids everywhere. He has become a spiritual father to many. And the scriptures are holding Paul up and saying, we should imitate him. We should imitate him. We, we should make sure our life is vested into growing a big, beautiful family by rebirth, the family of God. This is why Paul loves singleness. The single life shows what will last forever. And then thirdly, the reason Paul loves the single life is because the single life allows for undistracted devotion. For undistracted devotion. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 32. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That's what he cares about. But the, but the married man is anxious about worldly things. It's not using worldly in a negative sense. It's just saying the things that make up life in this world as a married man. How, like how to please his wife. And Paul says his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. How to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul loves the single life because it allows him to focus on Jesus without distraction. I get to wake up every day thinking about Jesus. I get to wake up every day thinking about what would he want? What would he have? I get to wake up every day thinking about that and that alone. Now, let me be clear. Paul is not saying that if you're married, it's impossible to honor Jesus. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is just acknowledging the consuming nature of family. It, it, it parenting. Being a good husband or wife, it is a time-intensive endeavor. That, that is what Paul is saying. Now, when people ask me, hey, what hobbies do you have? The, the easiest way I could respond to that is by saying, I've got three hobbies. Uh, their names are uh, Hannah, Caleb, and Eva. Th those are my hobbies, right? It's just parenting is time-intensive. Marriage is time-intensive. And Paul is saying, those are good things. Uh, marriage, uh, parenting, th those are great things, but I love that I get to think about nothing but the mission of Jesus today. That my focus, my attention is undivided in that way. I, I can be singular in my focus. Paul is saying, this is why singleness is a gift to me. I, I can give my wholehearted attention to the mission of Jesus. Paul loves the single life because it allows him to focus on Jesus. He loves the single life because it gives him freedom for Jesus. Freedom for Jesus. Anytime I offer an invitation to one of my married friends, here is uh, what I almost always get back. Uh, I need to check with my wife first. <laughs> let, let, let me check with my wife, right? Now, that is a right response. I'm not, I'm not dogging that. I mean, that, that, is, that is a right, that's what they should say in that moment, right? Because when you say I do in marriage, you are saying I don't to a million other things. And when a man or a woman that, that is married is not saying I don't to a million other things, they are going to make a total mess of their marriage. So that, that is a right question to ask. Let me check with my wife, 
right? Marriage puts right restraints on a person. I, when I just think about my life, I, I have to consider my wife and my kids before I make almost every decision in my life, right? It, it is an appropriate right restraint. And Paul is saying, yes, those are right restraints for a married man or woman. But I love that I have the freedom to say yes to Jesus without any restraint. I, I love that, that I can do that. I love that I have the freedom to say uh, yes to him, even when it's risky, that I can take risks that if I were a married man, I couldn't take. I can take risks that if I had a bunch of kids, I, I could not take. I can make decisions now that if I were married, I, I just couldn't make. But, but as a single person with this type of freedom, I can say yes to whatever Jesus sets before me. Jesus, I can do anything. I, I'll go anywhere. All you have to do is say it. Right? Paul is saying, this is one of the things I love so much. This is why singleness is a gift. I can say yes to Jesus without restraint. It gives me unprecedented freedom in my life for these things. Okay, now here's what I want to do to finish up. I want to just offer some practical encouragement for us as a church family. And I want to do that by by talking to several different groups. And the first group is to the married folk in the room. If you're married, I want to encourage you in a very straightforward way to open up your life, your family, to singles. To incorporate one or two singles into your family life. To create a culture that values and honors singles, it takes way more than a sermon. It takes the married folk in a church to open up their life to singles. That's how you create that culture. So if you're married... I just want to just say this as on the nose as I can. Do whatever it takes to invite some singles into your life. Whatever it takes, open up your life to to some singles. Uh, A few years ago, I had one single in our church describe one of those unique burdens. And listen to one of the burdens he described kind of in that single, in his single life. He said it this way. There's one situation that occurs where I'm acutely aware of my singleness. Many Sundays, I go to service with hundreds of people only to eat lunch by myself. I'm very proactive in seeking out other people. Unfortunately, many of them already have plans with their immediate or extended families. And my family isn't local. And it would be a special blessing to me for families to invite me over for Sunday lunch. Tip Mary Folk in the room. Why wouldn't we do that? I mean, why wouldn't we open up our life in just those sort of simple ways like that to singles? So so married folk, if we're going to create that culture, it takes us doing that. To parents, I want to give a word of warning to parents in the room. How young people have moved from single to marriage has shifted dramatically over the course of human history. So it's taken a lot of different forms and how that, that journey has worked itself out. Now, in our sort of current cultural moment and context, the word we use to describe that move from single to, to married, kind of that journey, is the word dating. Okay, that, that's the word we use. Now, let me give you a definition of the word dating. Dating is pairing off with a person of the opposite gender, for the sake of considering marriage. Okay, that's what dating is. 
pairing off opposite gender for the sake of considering marriage. Now, notice that last phrase, because that's giving you the, the end, the purpose of dating. The purpose of dating is connected to marriage. It's for the sake of considering this person for marriage. Now, generally, when I think of dating, I, I am okay with where we are in the context of human history, and this is the way it's happening right now in our culture, right? I, I'm okay with dating. Right? That, that. Pairing off the opposite gender for the sake of considering marriage. But here is what I am not okay with. Here is what I think lacks a ton of wisdom and I don't think squares with the scriptures. It's what we might call recreational dating. Okay, Here, here's what recreational dating is. Recreational dating is pairing off with a person of the opposite gender for the sake of, well, nothing. That, that's recreational dating. Pairing off with the opposite gender, for, for no purpose, right? It, it's rec recreational dating is, is dating that is disconnected from the pursuit of marriage. So, I mean, I could give you legions of examples of it. It's two fourth graders pairing off in a dating relationship. And listen, that's happened. I mean, that, that is common in our culture. It's two sixth graders, a couple of eighth graders, it's even 10th or 11th graders who want to go to college and do the college thing before they get married. It's even that. It's just dating that is disconnected from, oh, this could logically lead to marriage. I am assessing this person for marriage. And there is like an appropriate time frame that, that would get us to marriage if we're going to date. Right? This is recreational dating. And recreational dating, hear me, it's crazy, but it is culturally accepted and common. And parents encourage it all the time. All, all of those things are true. And so parents, I, I just want to make sure you're thinking through the dating thing and how you're teaching your kids about these things. Uh, you, need to, you need to do some serious reflection. And 1 Corinthians 7 is the place in the Bible you ought to go to do that reflection. You should ask yourself the question, is the way I'm encouraging my kids around dating reflective of what I'm reading in 1 Corinthians 7? Recreational dating, I, just imagine you coming to Paul and saying, hey, I've got a sixth grader. You think I ought to encourage that person to date? Just imagine what Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 7, would say to you. He's like, are you serious? That is the best way for you to squander this season of singleness in your kid's life. No, that, that is not the way they should be spending their single years. This is a chance for them to give wholehearted devotion to Jesus, to use their freedom for Jesus in all the ways that Jesus would want. Right? So, so parents, just make sure you are thinking about that and how you're encouraging your kids. And then lastly, to our singles. I just want to look at our singles. And it doesn't matter if you're 10 and single, 30 and single, 60 or single. To every one of our singles, please do not waste your singleness. Don't waste this season of your life. God has given you a gift. Spend that gift on him. Use your attention, your focus for Jesus. Give attention to his word. Pour yourself into his word. Get to know the husband you're going to be with forever. Give yourself to the mission of Jesus. Use your freedom for Jesus to say, what, what might God want to do with you in this season where you have this type of freedom? What type of risk would he want you to take? Who would he want you to share Jesus with? What does he want you to do? How would he want you to invest your life into other people in this season of your life? Please don't squander 
this season that Jesus has given you of singleness. I'm going to end with some words from Margaret Clarkson. She lived, born in 1915. She lived in 2008. So 93 years of life. And she was a remarkable woman. She was a hymn writer. She suffered from all sorts of physical illnesses, chronic pain throughout her life. She wrote 17 books, the most popular of which was a book called Grace Grows Best in Winter. And she was single for all 93 years of her life. And listen to what she said. Through no fault or choice of my own, I am unable to express my sexuality in the beauty and intimacy of Christian marriage as God intended when he created me a sexual being in his own image. To seek to do this outside of marriage is, by the clear teaching of scripture, to sin against God and against my own nature. So as a committed Christian, then I have no alternative but to live a life of voluntary celibacy. I must be chaste, not only in body, but in mind and spirit as well. Since I am now in my 60s, so she's writing this in uh, maybe the 70s or early 80s, so she's 60 about this time. Now in my 60s, I think that my experience of what this means as a single person is valid. I want to go on record as having proved that for those who are committed to do God's will, his commands are his enablings. To every single person, there are difficulties in the life God has called you to as a single man or woman. But friend, what God has commanded of you, what obedience will require, God will enable. He will empower that in your life. That's what she's saying. And then she goes on to look back over her lifetime of singleness and offers this encouragement. And she uses a, uh, the last little scene in the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, this is when Christian is crossing the river, which symbolizes death, into the celestial city. And death is scary. Death is hard, right? And so she uses that scene to say this. When Christian was crossing the river at the close of Pilgrim's Progress, his heart failed him for fear. He began to sink in the cold, dark waters. But hopeful, his companion helped him to stand, calling out loudly, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. Then Christian recovered his faith and passed safely through the waters to the celestial city. And then she offers this ending encouragement. If there are singles who find the waters of singleness dark and deep and who feel I sink in these deep waters, the billows go over my head, all of his waves go over me. This is my message to you concerning singleness. 93 years of single life. She says, be of good cheer, my brother, my sister. I feel the bottom and it is good. Will you pray with me? give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press down into you what would be most helpful, wipe away the things that wouldn't be. You know, we just sang about Jesus being our good shepherd, Psalm 23. And part of what it means for God to be our good shepherd is that we don't want that he gives us everything needed to satisfy our hearts. That is true if you're married. That is true if you're single. Everything your heart needs, God has given you in Jesus. 
in his life, death, and resurrection. So if you're married or if you're single, our role is to keep looking to the good shepherd. Keep moving toward the good shepherd. Loving the good shepherd. Enjoying the good shepherd. So Father, would you would you convince us that as the good shepherd we really don't want today? God, would you help us see both marriage and singleness like you do? Father, would you help us endure the difficulties of both marriage and singleness in a way that would show how satisfying and beautiful you are to all of our single folk in the room. Father, would you bless them today? Would you help them? Would you meet them in the ways that their heart needs today? Oh God, we pray it in the name of Jesus.